Thank you very much. Wow. Praise the Lord. All right. Thank you. All right. Let's pray together as we uh, open up the scriptures. Father, we thank you for the gift of music, which as we learned in Psalms uh, last year, so lifts us up to you. And you wired us, Lord, that instruments and songs and musics would move us. And we give you thanks for that. And that what unites us as a people is our worship of you, the living God. So thank you, Lord, for voice. Thank you for the saxophone. Thank you for whoever wrote that song many, many years ago. And so, Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from our present evil age as we approach Christmas this year, that, uh, Lord, we may celebrate you and your entrance into the world and not get sucked in by the beast. So, Father, as we uh, look at this very, very difficult passage, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, let's go to Revelation chapter 3. And uh, again, we're in a series on the book of Revelation. And we are just finishing up chapter 3. And this book was written in the first century to a group of churches that were being pastored by the bishop, John the Apostle. So he knew these churches very well. He traveled around to them. And so he's writing really to two groups of people in these churches. The first group is a group that's, uh, that's been suffering for their faith, and many of whom are dying. The, the, the Roman Empire has unleashed a tremendous persecution against the church. Uh, folks who are standing up to witness, to bear witness to what is true, are suffering, and in some cases dying. And so this book is written to them to encourage them to stand firm, not be moved, bear witness to what is true, even at the point of death. And so it's written to that group of people. At the same time, it's written to folks in these churches and some of these churches which are compromising with the beast of the Roman Empire, which is the image that's given. I'm going to keep that throughout the whole book. Uh, this visual image of the Roman Empire as a beast through which the evil one, demonic powers are working to crush and silence the voice or the witness of the people of God. To shut you down, to shut me down, that we would not speak for what is true. And so as we get into the book, as we move along, you're going to see how the beast is referred to as a prostitute uh, who wants intercourse with the church to destroy your witness, who is so powerful spewing out propaganda, lies inside the church and outside the church to use any means possible to stop you in your service and your witness to Jesus. And the beast will, do, will have no uh, compromise with anything that is true. And so it is a relentless battle of opposition that every true believer will have with the beast. And Revelation says at the end of time, that conflict will grow more intense and will cost many believers their, their, their lives. So what we've had in these seven churches, let's go through them one by one. So today we're going to do the church in Laodicea, which is the last church and it's the danger of lukewarmness, which is uh, speaking in particular to those who are compromising their faith with the beast. So we've looked at, there's really a comp these seven churches can be seen as uh, kind of a, a word to the church all through the ages of what are the dangers as we seek to follow Christ in the world. Because remember, the beast will manifest in different ways in different parts of the world at different times in history. So in our time of history, it's, the, it's Western civilization, it's the, it's the whole technology, media, all this stuff is spewing out at us through this globalization taking place around us which will seek to absorb us and our witness to what is true about Jesus. So we started with, remember, the first danger was the danger in the church of Ephesus of losing our first love. And uh, we saw that in chapter 2. Then it was 
the next church, which is Smyrna, and it was a danger of not bearing witness to Jesus out of fear of suffering. And so we're exhorted in that, in that um, tape, in that church. The third church was the church of Pergamum that was in danger of doctrinal compromise that was going to do them in. The fourth church was the church of Thyatira, which was a moral compromise of immorality in the church that was then going to, also the beast within threatening to destroy uh, believers and their witness to what is true. The fourth was the church at Sardis, which, or the fifth, which was a, was a danger of falling asleep, getting comfortable, and not waking up and doing all of what God had asked us to do. The sixth church was the church at Philadelphia, which was uh, the danger of not walking through open doors that God has before us. And now today is the church at Laodicea, which is the danger of lukewarmness. And so in some ways, these seven cover just about everything. For all churches in all of history, if you take them all at once. But of course, some are going to apply more to, than others in our personal lives and in our churches, depending on when we're living in history. This letter here is the most severe. This is the harshest, most difficult of the seven letters, is the one we're going to read today at Laodicea. And so it is with great uh, fear and trembling that I even give this message. Now, we are only at the end of chapter 3. Do you believe it? And actually, chapters 4 and 5, which we'll begin next week, is the climax of the book. It's kind of seen as a centerpiece out of which everything else flows. So I want to encourage you, if you've missed some of these messages, pick up the tapes uh, of these first ones so you get a foundation of where we're going. And I want to encourage you, again, read, read Revelation in your devotional time. Uh, we ordered some study guides from Intervarsity Press just to kind of help you in your quiet time to kind of move along the book of Revelation as we're going to be digging into it. It's going to get even you know, more picturesque and more intense as we move along. It is a phenomenal book. That my prayer is that you will get this book into you. We will as a church, and it will change you for the rest of your life. And it is that powerful and that clear a book. So again, you might want to pick this up at, at the book table. And again, if you miss some tapes, get them when you get a chance. All right. Now, the problem with the Church of Laodicea is they have melted in so much with the culture of the Roman Empire that there's no persecution, there's no problems, uh, and they think they're doing just great. Uh, in fact, we had a couple of Russians here. Any, Russia, any folks from Russia here? Soviet Union? Former Soviet Union? All right. Now oh, you're here first service. My Russian illustration of uh, during the reign of Catherine the Great in the 1780s. There was a, a Russian field general named Gregorio Potemkin. Anyone heard of him? Potemkin? Anyway, he uh, was having an affair with the Empress Catherine the Great, uh, which they eventually broke off, but she gave him a province to rule. And uh, she was going to come and, and visit the province where he was ruling. And so what he did over a period of four years was he spent uh, billions of rubles or rubles, whatever they're called, and he organized this lavish tour for her along all of these towns uh, along the uh, Black Sea. And what he did was he created all of these fake villages with all these happy people. And it took him four years of preparation to do it. And uh, it actually lasted 1,000 miles. So actually, he would, they, she'd go through a town. It was, all, it was a fake town. They'd dismantle it, and they'd carry it down, you know, down the river, and they'd do the town again and use the same props and people. But it was to show her that he was doing a great job as the governor of this particular area. But it became a famous you know, expression used in, in uh, you'll see it read sometimes, called a Potemkin village, which means it's all fake. And politicians will, will, or, 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 or uh, advertising will make things look like they're great, but it's all a big sham. And that's kind of what the Laodicean church is like. It looks great. Just like a church can look great when you walk into it. Rich, big, people shouting, making a lot of noise. Or even an individual Christian can look great, but inside can all be empty. And that's what's going on here at Laodicea. You've got a church that looks great. 
In fact, more than one person has spoken about the American church as being the latest in church as a whole. And if you look at it from the worldwide perspective as being wealthy, rich, apparently having the other mega churches all over the, all over the, all over the states, but churches that really, behind the facade, are empty on the inside. Interesting thought. And, uh, but here is Laodicea. It is the wealthiest church of the seven churches that are mentioned here. And uh, uh, it's actually famous for three things. It's famous because it's got a great um, clothing. It's got like, a famous garment district. They have this, this unique wool that the Romans loved. And so they were famous for that. Their clothing, they were famous for a medical school. They had like the best medical school in the empire. So people, anybody with eye problems went to Laodicea to get help. And it was also famous because it had a lot of gold. It was so rich, so wealthy that they had their own gold system. They had the great, it was one of the great banking centers of the, of the known world at that time. So it was a city that had a lot of things together. Uh, but they had a big problem with water, as I'll explain in just a few minutes. And, and the geography and the background of the city, perhaps more than any other of these seven letters, really helps us understand this chapter. In fact, without a geographic understanding and a cultural understanding of what's going on in Laodicea, the letter doesn't make a lot of sense. And we end up misinterpreting it. So I give you that background, which we're going to read the letter, okay? So let's begin at verse... 14, as Jesus, again, through John, who is, a, you know, he's the apostle, he's speaking prophetically. And remember, Jesus sees through our lives. He goes, he, again, he cuts through the external to what's really going on inside. Here's what he says, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen. Just, you know, amen means like, like the faithful one, the, the true one, the foundation literally is what it means. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So let me just stop here for a second. So, so Jesus refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. Remember that theme of witness, martyr? Jesus is faithful and he is true. And really the central, a central theme of this book is we are called over and against a culture filled with lies, which is the beast, and propaganda and all this misinformation. We are called to be faithful and true, like our, Jesus, like our Lord Jesus, regardless of what the cost may be. But he's revealed here as the faithful and true one. And that's part of what it means to be a follower of his. And the Laodiceans are not faithful. They're not true. They're actually, they're very inconsistent and uh, very uh, unfaithful, very unreliable. All right, verse 15. I know your deeds. He says that in every of the seven letters. I know your works. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, underline that word, neither hot nor cold, I am about, now circle that word about, I'm about, I'm not, I had not done it yet, but I'm about to spit you, the word spit there is vomit, it's a nice word, to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, real rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Now, here's the key verse. You've heard it a million times, but underline this verse if you've got your Bible and you've got a pen. 
Here I am. This is the good news. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, that's to him who listens, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. All right. Now, I'm going to start with the bad news. All right? Then we'll get to the good news. You want the bad news first or the good news first? Let's get the bad first. Let's get it over with. The problem was, I think we so buried, I so buried people with the bad news, the first service, I had to beg them to take communion for the second service, all right? Now, because the bad news is bad, but the good news is good. So help me to balance this off here. All right, so the bad news first, which is really, the bad news is about lukewarmness, and that's the theme here. It's the danger of lukewarmness, which is, it's, that's, I mean, it's, this is tough. This is, this is going to hit all of us here, all right? and some more than others. But the key to understanding what he's talking about in lukewarmness, and that key word here, is, is you've got to understand something about water and, and how it was used in those days. Now, if you look on a map in the back of your Bible where it's got these seven churches in Asia Minor, you'll notice that the church of Laodicea is right next to two other cities, Colossae and Hierapolis. They're actually within a couple of miles, kind of like from here to the Bronx and Brooklyn, all right? So, so they're very close. And so... Uh, when he's talking about hot, cold, lukewarm, uh, he's referring to a couple of things that they all knew about. So this is going to give us some insight into the passage. At first, he's talking about the imagery of water is these things called hot springs that were found in Hierapolis. Now, in the ancient world, uh, when you were sick, either you went to one of the you know, temples, goddesses, you know, like Asclepius, but one of the things you would do is you would go to these, these famous hot baths. Now, a city right next to Laodicea that was, you could actually see from Laodicea, and there's there's so much excavation and lots of research done on this. This is not even like a, you know, a new idea. This is very, very common. But that they could see from Laodicea these, these hot baths that spurred up okay, in Hierapolis, a city right nearby. And uh, these springs, people would go to these hot baths when you were sick to bathe, to get well, open up your pores. Kind of like you go to a steam bath you know, or a sauna. You would go to these hot baths. It was very well known in the ancient world, kind of like a hospital. And so when he's speaking about hot they're thinking of these hots, okay, hot baths, hot water of these, of these waters of Hierapolis, okay, that people would go to. So you would go there, you'd get comforted, you'd get healed when you went there, okay. At the same time, there was, there was cold water that came from the city of Colossae that was also well known in the ancient world and, and famous. And the, 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 uh, the water from Colossae was famous because it was so refreshing, here we are, all right, I think I spelled it wrong, excuse me. But the cold water was so refreshing for those who are weary that it, too, was kind of like getting the best spring water. Where do we get our spring water from? Colorado, upstate New York? I don't know. I just know we have good water in Queens, though. Let's not forget that. But uh, Colossae was well known for its cold water. Now, at the same time, so, so when he says, I wish you were either hot or cold, most scholars believe, and I, I'm in agreement, that he's referring to this. He's not saying, oh, I hope, I wish that you were cold for Jesus. No. What he's saying is that I wish you were either hot and that you were giving out healing medicinally to those who were sick around you with your life. 
Or I wish that you were giving out cold water that was a blessing of refreshment to invigorate those who are weary in their travels of life. But the problem is, you're neither hot nor cold. You're not blessing anybody with what I've given you, my, your gifts, your talents, your energy, your time, your money, your resources. You're living for yourself. You're neither hot, like the hot medicinal waters of Hierapolis, nor are you cold, which is refreshing people. You are lukewarm. And actually, lukewarm is very interesting because lukewarm, Laodicea also is famous because they built this aqueduct that would take the hot waters from this city, six miles away, and it, tra- it brought it all the way down to Laodicea. It was a, quite a big construction project, but it didn't work. And so these waters were actually written about as Laodicea had, a, had this lukewarm water because by the time it, it slowly got this hot water flowed down from Hierapolis, by the time it got to Laodicea, the water was lukewarm. And again, this is, this is water with minerals in it and sulfur. It tasted terrible. And that's the image there of their water. Laodicea had a very big water problem. And so one of the false ways they solved it was this water that they tried to get from here that became lukewarm. A lot we can do with that. Interesting, you get progressive lukewarmness and all that stuff. But let's not get carried away. So when he says to them, when he gives this image, I wish you were either hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, they know exactly what he's talking about. Immediate image to them. It's like us talking about you know, landmarks in New York City, Statue of Liberty and other things. So he says this. Uh, uh, you're, 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 you're lukewarm, and now he uses this expression, and you want to look at verse 16, because he says something that is one of the most, most nasty expressions used in the entire Bible. Uh, when Jesus says in verse 16, because you're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, that is a vivid, violent shocking picture. It's almost overwhelming if you sit with it for a few moments. I'm about, the word for spit, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now this is his church. He's not speaking to some folks out there who are not believers. He's speaking to believers inside the church. And he's saying, I'm, I'm so nauseated by what's happened to your life, your faithful and true witness, that you become self-absorbed. You're, neither, you're not healing anybody anymore with what I've given you, nor are you refreshing anybody. You're neither hot nor cold. You, 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 you smell bad. You taste bad. And in fact, it's so nauseating that I am about to, the word there is literally, vomit you out of my mouth. That's, that's bad news, all right? Now, my daughter, my, my eight-year-old, had the flu the day I started studying this passage. She vomited six times, all right, in one evening. And I almost vomited seeing and smelling her vomit. And I called in the reinforcements, which was Jerry, who took care of everything. I was gagging because it was such a horrible... Now, now just think of vomit, okay? You have to think of vomit to appreciate the passage because that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you, which I created and I, and I called to myself with a destiny and a plan. There's nobody like you on the planet. I gave you unique giftings and talents and destiny and purpose. And I've, I've given you all these gifts so that you could be a hot spring. Wherever you go, you could be a cold spring wherever you go. But you know what? You're neither. You're wrapped up in yourself and all these blessings you've got, me and Jesus. And so you know what's happened? You're lukewarm. And now, this has gone on to such a place now, I want you to know something, this is nauseating to me. And he tries to shock them, you know what I'm saying, I'm about to vomit you, and you've got to get the image of vomiting, out of my mouth, 
because you're not hearing me. That's, that, that's the bad news, all right? Now, these Laodiceans, they can't see straight. Part of lukewarmness is you don't know you're lukewarm. That's, that's, that's what's so difficult about this text. Because the Laodiceans think they're doing just fine. They think they're great. They say in verse 17, you say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. You know, they, they, they don't see it. That's, the, that's why this passage is so difficult. Because life is going well. They're smug. They're confident in their lives. They overestimate themselves. And they're stagnant. And they're not moving. And it's, what's so offensive to God is, I like the word, is their smugness. Their arrogance about it, that they've got it all together. And so Jesus says to them in verse 17, you don't realize that you get this line of this line is very interesting in Greek. Boom, 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 boom. You're wretched. In fact, he says, you are the wretched one. You're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And he goes, despite the fact that you have overflowing banks and you're wealthy and you have a famous banking center, you are really, you're poor. You think you're rich. You are poor because you're, you're basing richness on the values of the beast. And you think it's material wealth. You are in poverty. And, he goes, and you think you have the best doctors? You've got great eyesight because you've got this great salve that they're famous for? You don't realize you're blind, even though you see you're blind. In fact, best clothing? You're famous for this great textile industry? I want to tell you something. You're naked out there. And it's embarrassing, but you don't even see it. Because you don't understand that Jesus is the source of true wealth. I'm going to go to the next one here. So Jesus says to them, go ahead. They, they, the ladies say, you've sold out to the beast. The values of the beast about comfort, convenience, personal, my own personal life. It's me, 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 me. And secondly is, you've neither healed nor comforted the sick nor refreshed the weary with your life. You've done neither. And uh, they're vacillating. Now, it's interesting because they're being judged not because they're immoral or not because they're doctrinally impure because they still believe the right thing. They're being judged because the gift inside of them they're doing nothing with it. They've got their talent, but they've buried it. They have the capacity to refresh and to bless, but they're not doing it. Kind of like Matthew 25, when did you not see me in prison? When did you not see me? Jesus said, well, when you didn't do the least of these, you didn't do to me. It's very similar here. So, again, it's interesting. They're living as if God doesn't exist. Kind of like I'm just going my merry way. Now, we're called all to do this, right? to be hot and cold springs for people. Out of our brokenness and weakness and out of our own journey, not that we had it all together, but it's out of our being touched and healed by Jesus ourselves, we hopefully give that away to other people. Now, Jim Wallace wrote a very interesting book. And uh, we just stay with this. Let's, can we stay with the bad news for just a minute? Hopefully, hopefully it'll make the good news seem better to you when we get to it. Jim Wallace is a, is a writer, uh, pastor, kind of part-time pastor, out in Washington, D.C., and he edits a journal called Sojourners. And it's a community that lives in a very poor, if not the poorest neighborhood in Washington, D.C. It's been there about 25, 30 years. And he, he argues that the only way you can see the culture clearly is from the bottom. That the people who can see really clearly the culture are folks who are the most marginalized and the poorest. That's why it's so important to be in touch with the poor, not just read about them in newspapers and read statistics and watch them on TV. But he argues that it's the, only, it's the place of seeing clearly. So anyway, he wrote this book recently, and I've re read many articles. I followed the guy for many years. And he wrote a book called The Call to Conversion. And what he basically argues is that most American Christians are half-converted. They've not really 
had a full conversion experience. Because, I'll quote what he writes. And you can just sit on this a little bit and think about it. He writes, we live in one of the most self-centered cultures in history. Self-fulfillment and individual advancement has become our chief goals. The leading question of our times is, how can I be happy? And how can I be satisfied? And this self-centered culture has produced a self-centered religion that says, what can Jesus do for me? Jesus can make you happier, self-satisfied, well-adjusted, and more prosperous. Jesus doesn't change our lives, but he improves them. And so conversion, he writes, is just for ourselves and not for the world. That American conversion is about me. It's not about refreshing other people. It's not about a mission that God's got for me in my life and the world, an entire change of direction. Some of you were in this in-depth Bible discussion we did on Acts a couple weeks ago. And we looked at the conversion of Paul, which is given an entire chapter in in, uh, Acts chapter 9. And why it's given, we talked about the reason it's given to us is it models for us what does it really mean to become a Christian? What's it really look like? And we talked about how for Paul, he models becoming a Christian is you may not be struck on the road, you know, knocked off your horse by a light from heaven, but everybody is going the wrong way and has to, and it's, you know, it turns around, repents. Everyone has a personal encounter with Jesus as part of conversion. I hear somehow his voice speaking to me. I'm broken. I fall down, I'm, I'm humbled, and then my eyes are opened and I see Jesus. I receive the Holy Spirit, I'm filled with the Spirit, I am baptized, and then my whole direction of life has changed. I'm, I'm involved in mission to the world around me. But what we learn in Acts is that that is what it really means to be converted, to be a Christian, is I've gone, to, I'm going, from going this way in my life to now I'm going an entirely different way in being a hot and cold spring and bearing witness to what is true the rest of my life in the world in which I live. But his argument is that in American Christianity, it's I get blessed, I get my life improved, and it stops right there. It's not turning away from my old life because God has called me to live for the world and he's got something for me to do. And he's got a kind of a person for me to be. And I think there's something to that. Next, next thing. So Jesus says to the Laodicean in church, I counsel you to buy. Now what's interesting, he says, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me. It's like, I, looked, I said, why is he saying I counsel you? Like, why does he say I command you or I... But it's like, I, I advise you. Advise? You just call me lukewarm, you're going to vomit me, and you give me some advice? It's like, Jesus, I mean. But he's so, you've got to catch this. This is kind of part of the good news, how tender Jesus is. Because he is so unpushy. He is not forcing himself on these later scenes, just, just like he's not going to force himself on you today. And he says to you, I, I, I'm going to give you something that's free by grace. You purchase it, he says, buy this without, you know, buy this from me, which in, is an expression means it's free. So take it from me. Here, buy it. It's by grace. And he mentions three things. The first he mentions is gold having been purified by fire. But again, remember, Laodicea was known for its gold. was known for its wealth. And he's saying, in fact, Laodicea was so rich. When they had an earthquake in 61 AD, uh, they said to Rome, don't worry about sending us any money to rebuild the city. We have enough money. We'll rebuild it ourselves. That's, that's, how, that's how much money they had as a city. That's like us saying after the World Trade Center f- fell, those... Don't worry, you know, Albany and Washington, keep your money. We'll take care of it ourselves here in New York. That's, the, that's how wealthy the city was. And Jesus says, he's already said that you're poor. He goes, oh, but I want you to buy from me real gold. It's free. It's, he calls it having been purified by fire. He's referring to the expression in the New Testament of, of, of as you walk through life and following Jesus. I hope you found this out. You, you hit a lot of trials. Have you found that out? 
And so, in fact, some of the people I give you trials are right in this room. And, but it's through trials that your faith is purified by fire. And the only way you mature in Christ is through diverse trials. James chapter 1, verse 2. There is no other way to grow and mature in Christ but through valleys and trials. But the Laodiceans don't want that. They're going after worldly gold. He says, no, I'm free. I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you gold purified by fire if you'll take it from me. And uh, that ge- it's called genuine faith that's indestructible and eternal. Then he says, I'm going to counsel you to buy from me, number two, uh, white garments of purity, which basically are good works. In this case, he's referring to your, 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 your works before me. Nothing, you're not a Christian, but your works are, are shameful. They're disgraceful. You're, you're walking around naked because you're not doing what I asked you to do. And he's saying, walk, I'm going to give you white garments of purity. Just do what I've asked you to do. I'm giving you the power and the grace. And I'll give you joy in doing it, but take it from me. These white garments, put them on. It's not going to be so difficult. And then he goes, thirdly, I count you to buy from me some eye ointment because you're blind as a bat. And you think you can see, but you don't see clearly. You, you so bought into the beast that you think that what are lies are true and what is true are lies. You've gotten so twisted in how you see life right now. Take from me some ointment. Forget the ointment from your best medical school that will heal lies. I'm going to give you what can really touch your eyes and enable you to see. Now, in their blind self-sufficiency, you ready for this? The Laodiceans had excommunicated Jesus from their church. That's the image that we're given in verse 20 when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He's saying that, that you've, you've put me out of the church. Now, don't get all confused, all right, with me about the image about, oh, I mean, Christ is in me, I become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live in me. Just, just stay with this image. I understand that. But what he's saying is that, in effect, you as a believer have excommunicated me from your life. You've thrust me out of your life. And so now I'm on the outside of your life, and I'm knocking on the door trying to get in. He's speaking to believers here. Now, because you're lukewarm. Now, I, let's, I don't have all the answers here, so I, I just, this is so heavy. But what does it look like to be lukewarm? I think I'd ask yourself the question. I'm going to go back a little bit. You know, what's it, it's, you know, what's it mean to, go, to be lukewarm? Well, you know, we don't know fully, but I, I do know it. The bad news is, I mean, lukewarm has something to do with, I have talents and gifts given to me by God, and I don't use them. To be a hot spring of medicinally healing people, or be cold waters of refreshment. That, that I take the gifts and the talents that have been given to me by grace, and I basically, I live for myself, I bury them. I know that's part of it. I think also a part of it is I'm, I'm, when I'm lukewarm is that I'm not functioning out of love. Receiving love from God and giving it out to other people. Being. I think it also has to do with um, eating and drinking with Jesus. Living out of fellowship with the person of Jesus out of which I give out. I, but I don't know what else it means for you. As you think about what does it mean for you to possibly be lukewarm, are you doing and are you being the person God's asked you to be and do? Nobody can answer that question for you but you. But I want you to look at verse 19. If you feel rebuked by the bad news, that's good. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. If you don't hear his voice, if, he's not, if you're not struggling with God at all, you're in trouble. Where's my little notes here? Don't worry about the final judgment of God as long as you hear God talking to you. When you no longer hear God talking to you, 
you'd better be afraid of final judgment. Because those whom he loves, he's rebuking. When you are no longer hearing his rebuke, you're in trouble. When your heart has grown so hard that when he knocks on the door, it's so faint, you don't hear a thing anymore. That's when you're in trouble. You know what hell is? Hell is, as I like what C.S. Lewis says, hell is God gives people what they want. They don't want to be with me, I let them go. When God lets you go and you feel nothing and hear nothing anymore, you know you are in deep trouble. But if you are here this morning and you are, you're in pain because this is so heavy for you, you're feeling rebuked, you know you are loved. Those who, verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. But when you no longer are hearing that rebuking word from Jesus who loves you, that's when you better get really scared. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves, when Jesus says to these believers, I am about to spit you out of my mouth, does he really mean it, or is he just saying it for effect? Because we have a struggle here. I'm going to lay it out before you. All right, here's the struggle. The Bible says very clearly, when you accept Jesus, remember that series on Galatians and Romans? And Paul makes it very clear. It's a legal moment. You accept Jesus as your personal Savior, invite him into your life, you are justified. God the judge declares you innocent, pardoned, not guilty, once and for all, done. And then you are adopted, another legal ceremony. You are adopted into the family of God. God is no longer your judge, he's your father. You're an heir to all the glories of heaven. You are given the Holy Spirit by which you experience his sonship, his daughtership, Abba, Father. And it's done once and for all. And the father says, if you're in my hand, no one can snatch you out of my hand, right? You're not, are you, you're not the Bible's very clear, you're not adopted and then you're unadopted. When you mess up and then you're readopted and then unadopted and readopted and unadopted. But there's a place we're to be living in, which is we, I know I'm a son. The spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm, I'm his son, I'm his daughter. And the Bible's clear on it. I, I believe that. At the same time, the New Testament has all these warnings in it. And if you don't take the warning seriously, you're not listening, or I'm not listening to what the scriptures are saying. And what he is saying to these believers is if you don't respond to me, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. He's saying that. And he's not just like saying it like for effect. He means it. And I mean, what do you do with that? It's supposed to shake you up. Could have Jesus in one hand and the world in the other. And they were going to be strong enough to walk this out alone. Because lukewarmness is very powerful and very difficult to come out of. Again, these folks in Laodicea, they can't even see it. And he's slapping them around. So, Jesus says three things for them to do. The first is, he says, be earnest. Now, it's interesting, in, be earnest. Look at verse 19. Here's, okay, now how are you going to come out of it? Here's the good news. Be earnest. Now, by being earnest, it, it, that, that's the word for ze be zealous. Like, it, it's a present tense, like, like I got to get out of this thing. Like, that kind of attitude. Like, you're like, yeah, oh, I think I really, should, I really should do something about this. You've already missed it, Okay. You've got to feel a sense of desperation like, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. Now, if you don't know, you can fall into lukewarmness at the drop of a hat. You don't, you don't know yourself. We all, we all know it. That any of us, at the littlest things, can fall into it. But it's an earnestness. And secondly, he talks about repentance. He says, be earnest and repent. Now, that word repent is very interesting because it's a one-time act. Boom. Now, there's, there's something you can do today to come out of it. Just one step, you can repent, which means, repent means 
You're turning away from the way you're living. You're living a certain direction. Repentance means turn around. You're turning from this, but it's with zeal. You're turning from this, and you're turning to Jesus, to this new direction. That's repentance. That's, but it's, you're going to have a chance to do it at the end of the service. I'm going to invite you to repent before you come and do communion. But it's a one-time shot. Now you say, well, I know, but I'll go right back to the way I was living. Well, hopefully not. But nonetheless, it is a one-time shot. You do it over and over again, but you do it. And thirdly is, repent and open the door, which is turn to me. Now, here's this image. Now, this is the great, great news. In fact, I was so overwhelmed by this, I didn't even know what to do with it. I, I'll be honest, I, I just had to, I had to stop studying the passage. I just had to put it down for like two days because I was so incredulous by this open-the-door image. Jesus, and we're gonna, next week we'll do chapter 4. Jesus is the Lamb of God reigning on a throne over the entire universe. He is God. He is the Lord of all. His words created the universe. His word sustains every molecule and atom in the universe. He's keeping your lungs pumping, your blood flowing. And yet, he, in this picture here, in, chapter, in verse 20, he's outside the door of your life, pleading with you to get in. And you're nauseating to begin with. Do you understand how incredible it is? They're lukewarm and they smell. They're vomit-worthy. But he loves us so much. He says, I am knocking because I am pleading. It's, it's a God who is so weak, he hangs on a cross. It's a God so weak that you, whom he could crush with a word, he's knocking on your door. May I please come in? Because he's not going to force himself in. He's not storming the gates. He's not pushing himself in. He's saying, I want to come in and have that intimacy with you we used to have, that kind of relationship where, where we had fellowship, where it was fire for you, it was a joy for you, where we're friends, where you hear me and I hear you, where the word there, you eat with me. We're eating in ancient Near East, that was a common meal of loyalty and covenant. And, and he goes, I want to come in. But open the door, only you can do it. And he's so weak as our great God, and he appears weak, you know what I mean? He's strong, he's mighty God. But he longs for you that much that he's knocking. He's not pounding the door. He's not busting it down. He's just knocking. I want to come in and eat with you again. It's a gift. It's love. It's free. It's grace. Grace, grace, grace a billion times over. What grace for these crumbs. For us and our sin, he loves us that much. You've got to let that overwhelm you. The love of Jesus for me and for you that he's knocking on a door. And there's a famous picture. Do we have the picture? And I'm sorry it didn't come out that clear, but uh, you may have seen it in some book. Anybody seen this picture? Raise your hands. Anybody seen it? Uh, what it's famous for, I'm sorry you can't see it in the balcony or back very well, but this is Jesus, and, and he's knocking. Sorry he's got a halo. What are you going to do? You know? <laughs> but uh, you see his hand there? He's knocking. He's knocking on a door, but the key thing about this uh, picture, this painting, is that there's no knob on the outside. There's nothing for him to... Jesus can't open the door. I mean, he, the door has to be opened from the inside. And that Jesus respects your freedom. God created us free human beings. And a love relationship with any human being has to be based on freedom. And Jesus doesn't force you to love him back. He doesn't force you to want to enjoy him. Do you understand? If you don't want to be a hot spring or a cold spring, you don't want to have fellowship and eat with Jesus... 
He's not going to force himself down your throat. He's going to ultimately allow you what you want, which again, as C.S. Lewis says, that is hell. When God lets you totally have what you want and you're gone. You can be without me for eternity. But the picture of him pleading, and now if you look at that, you know, Jesus is asking, you ready for this? He's asking to be a guest in your house. Ugh, that hurts. He's asking, can I, he's asking, he's knocking, like, can I be a guest in your home, in your life? I mean, he owns your life to begin with, but he's asking to be a guest. What's interesting is that in Roman times, the, uh, the Romans were known to exploit Laodicea because it was so wealthy, they had all their parties in Laodicea. You can't see all the generals in Rome saying, let's go to Laodicea for a weekend of partying. And they forced the Laodiceans to be hospitable. But Jesus does not force himself on us so that we be hospitable. He's very gracious. He says, if I'm knocking on the door. Now look at verse 20. Now he's speaking to the whole church. Hear, hear this. Can you hear this? Here I am. As someone said first, I feel like he's so far from me. He, Jesus says, behold, or here I am. I stand I am standing at the door, and I am knocking. If Now he says, he speaks to the whole church, then he says, now, if any individual, now he speaks to the individuals, if anyone here in this place, now second service, if anyone, Jesus says, hears my voice. Now, right now, can you hear through what's going on in the service, worship, the word now? Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice, you say, yeah, I hear him. I think I hear you, Jesus. And opens the door. Because your choice. You've got to do something. Now, remember, it's repent, but it's open the door. You're saying, okay, I'm letting you in again. If you'll open that door from the inside, he says, here's what I'm promised. I will come in. I'm not worried. I'm bummed. No, I will come in. But I know, but I'm nauseating. I've been lukewarm for so long. I'm naked. My works. I'm... I'm I will come in if you'll open the door. And then we're going to eat together. We're going to have fellowship. We're going to have a relationship. And where they're eating and dining is, as most scholars believe, it's referring to, it's, it's a precursor to the Lord's Supper, which is we remember the Lord's death until he comes. Presently, we have fellowship at a meal with Jesus. And then the Bible says someday, Revelation 17, 18, 19, 20, we're going to have a great banquet with Jesus. We're going to eat with him and see him face to face forever and ever. So communion is a taste a fellowship, dining with Jesus, which we'll enjoy totally when we see him face to face. It's a great, great image here. So, morning here. Now, let me close with this little verse, verse 21. There is a great promise here. In fact, the greatest of all the seven churches promise. Here's what he says. If you will, you know, hear the bad news, now hear the good news. I love you. I died for you on the cross. I paid the price for your sins. I rose again. You don't have to pay for them again. Let me in your life again. Don't keep me outside the door. But if you'll let me in, here's what I promise. Verse 21 Jesus says, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. I mean, oh my gosh. Can you see yourself sitting on a throne with Jesus ruling the universe? Oh my goodness. Ridiculous. He's just about, I mean, there's the same people that are nauseating him. And he's saying, you're going to sit with me on my throne forever. I mean, 
And all you got to do is repent and open the door and receive a gift, have fellowship, and let him use you as hot springs and cold waters to those around you and live a life which he made you to live anyway. And he goes, you'll reign with me the highest, honorable, conceivable he offers the Laodicea. He's offering to you what a destiny, both on earth and eternally, he's offering you in this room. If you can hear, if anyone hears my voice, so don't worry about everybody else in the room. Forget about them. If anyone, you, says Jesus, if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. I promise you, I'll come in. And we're going to eat with you and you'll eat with me and dine together forever. You know what's great? Church history says that the Laodicean church did respond and became the most powerful church of the seven churches. So the question is, how is the end of your story going to read? Because they did respond and turn around. They did it. But I'll tell you, you need a, le- you need a revelation. To, to receive this message today, I, I don't know what else to say, but we all need a revelation on what does it look like for you today. So let's put these little, two things, Michael, these last things. So here's the invitation. Number one is to, ter- to have the invitation to turn away from the beast. All right? Of lukewarmness, compromise. And then it's an invitation to have meal fellowship with Jesus. And here's what I'd like to close with. I'd like to invite us to do two things. Let's do the message. Let's first um, repent, which means I think all of us need to be humbled by this passage. Whether you would say, am I in lukewarmness right now? That's only for you and God to decide. But even if you're not feeling lukewarm right now, and that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you're hot, or co- you're hot and cold. Wonderful. But let this passage sit on you a little bit. And be filled with such thankfulness that this Jesus loves you so much that he knocks on your doors and invites you to be, he wants to be a guest in your life. He, he loves you that much that he pleads with you to get in your life. Can you imagine that? That Jesus pleads with you to get in? It's, it's, just, it's just, it's too much to bear. When you think of our sins and our rebellions and our attitudes and our complaining and our criticizing, we kill other Christians and yet he's knocking on the door and he's pleading, can I come in your life? Can I get in there and dwell? I mean, it's just, it's just, oh, it's just, it's just too much. It's such a love. It's just, it's almost like as human beings, it explodes inside of us. We can't even take it. And some of us have never been loved even a little bit in our earthly lives, and we can't bear someone to love us that unconditionally. And we always rather keep them outside the door. It's safe. All right. So let's do this. Let's, let's. I want to give an opportunity for repentance first and then to eat. That's the two steps here. Invitation to turn away from the beast, repentance, okay? And I want the worship team to come on forward. And let's not do altar workers right now, all right? Let's just do, um, let's do the passage. There's two steps here. One is repent. We've got to repent first. And the second is communion, which you'll see here in the cup and the bread. Now, there's two steps. The problem is, some of you may never get past step one, which you feel so crummy about yourself being lukewarm that you won't open a door and let him in. But I want you to repentance first, and then I want you to come and have communion, which is to eat with Jesus, to let it's symbolic. And that's what the passage is talking about, I believe, communion. It's coming to eat with Jesus. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's a meal. Uh, the, the living Jesus is here. Here I am. And we remember his death. He's alive. He's alive today. And we're going to eat with him forevermore. And you come to the table 
and you thank him for his blood which washes even your sins and rebellions. And you wash in grace. Don't come to the table based on your performance. You come based on the cross. You come based on the blood of Jesus. You come by faith in him, not in your works. If you look at yourself only, you'll never get up and take communion again. Communion's a gift. Everyone who's a believer is invited to the table. But first, you need to repent. So there's a great song. I asked if we could do it first as a purify my heart. And uh, put the words up, Melanie. And, and if we could do this song, and maybe you may want to kneel up front here. Some folks did that first service. may just want to come and kneel up front. You can kneel at your, at your chair. You can stand. Um, but this song is a song of repentance. And you may just want to listen to Peter and Yusef sing it. Uh, or you may want to join in. Whatever you feel comfortable with. But you want to do the two steps. You want to repent. And then you want to invite Jesus in your life again fully to take over. Because the image here is not that he's in the attic. or It's either he's in the house or he's out. So my question is, in your life right now, is he really in the house or is he out? And the invitation is to come and let him in. And the way you're going to let him in is come to this table and say, Jesus, I want you in. And let him explode inside of you. And you know what? When you have fellowship with Jesus, being a water of refreshing that heals people, hot and cold spring, it's easy. When you're, when you're walking with Jesus. But if you try to be a blessing to people when you're not walking with Jesus, it's exhausting. It is a total drag. So let's all stand. So again, I want to invite you to come, repent first. Let's just take a time through this song of just cleansing or purifying my heart. Feel free to come kneel at the altar. Let's, I wouldn't, don't have any altar workers come forward right now. It's just You want to come and just turn to God. And sometimes it's very helpful to get up and do something as an act. Then do it. Who cares? We're all in this thing together. Come kneel here, kneel over there, whatever you got to do. Kneel at your seat. But you want to do something symbolic for yourself of unrepenting God. It's a one-time thing. I turn around now. And then the second step will be later eating of him. Well, let's just do that together. Father, I pray you'd move by your spirit as we come to worship. Release your power to be able to get up, Lord, and to repent, to have a zeal to want to repent. Because, Lord, except your spirit now blows on the word, it will fall on hard ground. Soften up our hearts to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are in worship here. Um, there's a lot going on. But we, we want to do the whole passage, all right? <clears throat> and some of us, our tendency is to just not... not we'll, we'll repent, and we'll, but we won't go and eat. But he loves you enough. He's saying, come out, let me in. And let's have fellowship together. And so the completion of this repentance is to, that you're acting out today is to come to the table and receive a gift of grace that Jesus says, my table is your table. He says, I don't deserve it. I smell, I've been nauseated. Jesus says, but I died for that. And you know, you don't have to die for it. I already died for it. Now come and receive now my blood which is over you. The new covenant of grace. My body, my life inside of you. I love you. I want to eat with you. I'm pleading with you. Let me in now. 
And you want to just, you want to, so I want to invite folks to come on forward. In fact, we have our altar workers. I want you guys now to come forward up to the left there. And, and I want you to come and you be up there and praying. And I want, as we worship, I, I want to invite you to come and take communion. I know everything is saying for many of you in this room, I don't deserve to take communion. And you want to say, I hang on to Jesus alone for my salvation. And to the best I've been able to this morning, I repented. I'm turning around. By God's grace, I'll follow through. But, the, but you need to eat and drink of him. You need to come to the table for sustenance and power and life. To enable you to get out of here and walk a journey that's going to be different than when you walked in there today. It's part of the package. It's in the text. It's in verse 20. So that voice says, you're not worthy. You've got to hear, yes, but he is worthy. And I come to the table in the name of Jesus alone. That's it. The only way anybody can come to the table. We're all on equal footing here. In the righteousness of Jesus alone we come. And so you come with your head held high because what a loving Savior we serve who hates sin enough that he died for it and went to hell on your behalf. You don't have to go twice. He did it. And for those in this room who need to receive Jesus and open... It's a great text for for people who are not sure they're even a Christian yet. The passage applies to you too. Jesus says, open a door and I will come in. And I want you folks, as some did first service, to want you to come and receive Jesus and let him in the door of your life. This is the verse that God used when I became a Christian. I could hear him knocking on the door of my life. I knew he was trying to get through, and I had been shut down for 19 years. And I finally said, all right. And once I opened the door, he came barging in. He did come in. And I've never been the same since. But, but it's a gift. I felt so unworthy. I knew I'd lived such a crummy life. But I never knew of such a grace and such a love as Jesus until that moment. And so I want you to come too. As we had to call folks forward to come for prayer, to become a Christian for the first time, or you just want to come for prayer, you've got to let them in again and come back. And we want to pray. We're all in the same boat here. We want to pray for each other and bless each other. Okay? Amen. All right. The altar's open. Let's worship. The, the uh, two tables are open up there and down here. So come on forward for, for communion. All right? Let's worship.